forgot to mention that uh, it's the return of the bulletin this week. I didn't know if you realized that. They're back there. They're not going to be handed out, but they're going to be on the table from now on. And in there, if you forgot your Bible, is uh, the text that we are going to be working through this morning. So if uh, that's for helps for people uh, that uh, we don't have pew Bibles anymore, so you can use the bulletin. Hopefully we'll have a return of the pew Bibles soon. Who knows? We're going to be looking at verses 7 through 12 in chapter 7 of Matthew. We've been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, and there's basically two ways you can approach the Sermon on the Mount. There's probably more than two ways, but it's easy to distill it down and and explain it this way and understand it this way. One, you can read through these three chapters, 5, 6, and 7, as a moral code, if you will, that helps you attain salvation. That's one way to read this. As a moral code that should be followed in order to gain acceptance to God. And many people read it this way. They read it as like kind of rungs on the ladder or a moral pathway to get to heaven. You know, if I do these things, if I live like this, I get there. Another way to read the Sermon on the Mount, and the correct way to read the Sermon on the Mount, is to read it as Jesus' sermon on letting us know that you can never, on your own, attain salvation. That it's an unattainable way of life. That that it helps us, as he works his way through this, as he's talking to us through the Sermon on the Mount, we begin to realize we can't do this. I mean, what we've been doing the last several months working through this, I I hope, um, you know, and I've mentioned this to a couple people along the way, there's just so much law here. Yes, there's grace as well, but he is really talking about law after law after law. Just consider some of the demands that Jesus has made of us thus far. He, he forbids anger. Not just an, an, an explosion. You can't just have an explosion. You can't have an implosion. Lust. You can't even look at another man or woman in a lustful way. He commands that we keep our word perfectly. He prohibits worrying, prohibits worrying and boasting. He decrees that you have to love your enemies as you love yourself. Okay, love your enemies like you love yourself. Can anyone do that? He demands that we have a singular devotion to him, to the exclusion of of everything around us. He soberly tells us that we, we can't be the slightest bit judgmental or the, or the tone of, of your life is going to be the tone of, of how God judges you. If that wasn't enough, God, you know, Jesus places these two massive bookends, if you will, 
on this sermon where he says to begin with that unless your righteousness, unless your righteousness, unless your way of life exceeds that of the Pharisees and scribes, you, you won't make it to heaven. And if that wasn't enough, he tells us you have to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Perfect. How are you feeling now? If you take Jesus' words seriously, and if you're sitting here in this church, I know that you do, it's way too much to bear. Way too much to do. I mean, we should be taken to the place where Paul was taken as he is describing his own sin in in Romans 7. We should be saying the same words that he said. What a wretched man am I. Who will save me from this body of death? We should be brought to a place where we say, I can't do this. I give up. What we, what we, what Jesus wants to do through the Sermon on the Mount is bring us to that end of the rope where we're just holding on to the end of the rope. And that's exactly where he wants us to be when he says this to us. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give you good things to those who ask of him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. With those words, Jesus kind of brings us to the end of his formal teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. That's why he ends it with, this is the teaching of the law and the prophets, meaning the Old Testament. He's going to go on for a a couple more verses to talk about three or four more admonitions. But this, with this teaching, he comes to the end of the Sermon on the Mount formally. And that's with that statement, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This kind of sums up Jesus' teaching with, with yet another impossible task, right? Another one he ends with. Proactively treat others as you would want to be treated. You see, no one can follow Jesus' sermon up to this point without becoming profoundly aware of your own need. That's where we should be, brothers and sisters. We are intended to read this and sit back in the pew, sit back in your chair and say, I can't do it. He wants us to get to the end of our ropes, the end of our own resources. He wants us to get to a place where we have nowhere else to turn. 
except to God. And that's where he's pointing us in this text today. He wants us to realize that the only way we can even begin to follow Jesus, the only way we can even begin to fulfill what he has said here, is to turn to our Heavenly Father, our loving and gracious Heavenly Father, in need and ask. He wants us to run to our Father in prayer. I think the Sermon on the Mount is law, is a whole lot of law. And I think one of the reasons that we are drawn to the Sermon on the Mount, right? Many people just love the Sermon on the Mount. I love the Sermon on the Mount. We're drawn to the Sermon on the Mount. One of the reasons is, is that our hearts do love law. Naturally, our hearts want the to-dos. Just tell me what to do, right? And we're, and we're drawn there. That's why I think even unbelievers are drawn to the Sermon on the Mount. Many of the verses that we've gone through over these months, we hear in our culture around us, don't we? Either positively or negatively. We hear, don't judge lest you be judged. They know that. We hear, love your enemies like yourself. I remember taking Avonlea to school in kindergarten at Pematic here and, and taking her to a class and Plastered on the wall in Pematic was verse 12 here. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And I thought, wow, scripture in school, that's great. But it makes sense because our hearts are naturally drawn to that. Naturally drawn to law. We all want those things to do. One of the differences between a Christian and a non-Christian, though, is that a non-Christian reads this and says you know what, I can do that. You know what, I'm, I'm going to add those things into my life and, and do those things. And I'll be a better person for it. You know, I'll stop doing this and I'll start doing what Jesus tells me here. I can do that. Whereas a believer should read the Sermon on the Mount and go, there is no way I can do that. A non-Christian reaches deep down within themselves and goes, okay, I'm going to white-knuckle loving my enemies. Whereas a Christian realizes, you know, however hard I try, there's always a part of my heart that is going to be hard and bitter and resentful, and I don't even want that to go away because they've hurt me. A Christian realizes how far short we fall to the standard. And what a Christian does is they cry out to God for help. That's what a Christian does. That's how spiritual growth works. As a matter of fact, that's how salvation works. You see, our spiritual growth is, is very much how you come to Christ. They work very similarly. When you get to the end of the rope, when you get to the end of your own resources, where do you turn? There's basically two choices you have. You can either turn to yourself and the philosophies of this world that will help you, you think will help you, to try and do better, work harder, do these things right, give me the four steps to be a better husband, or we run to Christ. We run to to God our Father through Christ his Son. 
And what you find, the difference between how the world thinks of it and how a Christian thinks of it is the world thinks of it as, I'll try harder. I'll do it. And a Christian says, it's been done for me. That's what we are doing when we are preaching the gospel to ourselves. We're reminding that. Christianity is the only place that tells you you can't climb up the rope far enough. You're not capable of fixing your deepest need. You do not have the resources. You do not you need help from the outside. And that's why Christ came because your deepest need, whether you realize it or not, your deepest need is not your next meal, the next rent check, the next fuel bill. It's, it's not a better job, a more fulfilling job, a good fishing season, or whether you have a big enough retirement. It's not your health. It's not your healing. It's not escape from depression. All those are important, but they're not ultimate. What the gospel focuses on is what is ultimate. Your deepest need is forgiveness through Christ and a restored relationship with the God who loves you. Your deepest need is a right standing before God. Your deepest need is to be able to stand before God rightly. And that's actually what Jesus' sermon is laying out. How to stand before God rightly. He's actually laying that out. No anger inside or out. No lust inside or out. A radically generous heart. Really loving those who despise you. Keeping every word you, you put every time. In other words, perfection. Which should bring us to our knees to say, I can't do that. And when we get there, when you get to that place, that space where you say, I can't, that's exactly where God wants you. It's exactly where the gospel can help you. That's exactly where salvation, you realize your need. That's exactly why Jesus came to, to live that sinless life. Because we can't. He was perfect. He fulfilled God's standard perfectly. He lived the Sermon on the Mount. It doesn't mean we're not to try to do these things. We are. And he'll go on to explain how God gifts us to do that here. But the core of the gospel is that Jesus lived a perfect life fulfilling the law and died a substitutionary death for your sins and mine, taking the penalty of, of sin, which is death. That's, the, that's why we see him on the cross. That's why we see him three days in, in the tomb. And he rose again from the tomb. Re, and, and that just makes everything he said True. And anyone who believes in him, meaning anyone who trusts what Jesus did 
and not what you can try to do, your efforts. That's what it means by having faith in Christ, trusting in Christ. Then God views you as he views his son. Perfect. Perfect. And that's how he treats you. He treats you like you live the perfect life. As the Bible puts it, you stand before God your Father justified, just as if you've never sinned. So when you turn and run to God through Jesus, when you're at the end of your rope, he promises to save you. He promises to help you. Jeremiah 29.13 says, God says to his people, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. In other words, he doesn't play hide and seek with you. He doesn't say, well, come here, I'm going to stand over here and he's not going to find me. He wants to be found. God promises to always be there for you. Always take the weight off of you and give you eternal hope in life. In that same choice we have in salvation, you know, when we come to the end of the rope, that same choice, that same helplessness, where do I turn, is the same thing that we do again and again in our life as Christians where sanctification is concerned. We are going to get to the end of the rope all the time in our lives. And what are you going to do? You have two choices. You can turn to yourself and your own resources and try and, try and pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. But you can only climb up the rope so high. Have you ever tried to hold on to a rope when, you're, when your forearms are burning and try and, and, and inch up? That's how we are many times emotionally and spiritually. It's the same choice we have. When the weight of the law is on you, where are you going to turn? When the weight of God's requirements, as you're doing your devotions, when the weight of God's requirements are on you, where are you going to turn? When you read the Sermon on the Mount, as we've just done, and he says, don't lust, don't be angry, don't be anxious, you cannot be anxious, where do you turn? And what Jesus is saying here is, run to your heavenly Father. That's what he's saying here. Ask, seek, knock, turn to him. Because he's a generous father that is eager to give you good gifts. He's a generous father, eager to help you. He's not some distant God wanting to watch you struggle. He doesn't turn you over like a turtle and, and say, okay, flip yourself over and I'll just stand over here and watch you struggle. He's eager to help. This is the major idea that Jesus wants to communicate to us today through this text that we have a generous Heavenly Father who is eager to give us good gifts. He is a generous Heavenly Father who is eager to give us good gifts. Read with me again, with that in mind, our text. He's a generous Father, eager to give us good gifts. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone, underline that, everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be opened. For which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? 
If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts, underline that, to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give you good gifts, underline that, to those who ask of him? John Newton was a slave trader, as we know, turned Christian. He became a pastor, and he is known for his hymn writing. He wrote Amazing Grace, as we all know, and we still sing it. But what many people don't know is is that when he was alive, John Newton was known for his prayer. We know him for his hymn writing. He was known for his prayer in his time, his prayer life. He would receive, as reports say, almost unbelievable answers to his prayer because he believed in what he termed large asking. Large asking. When explaining what he meant, Newton would often cite the legendary story of the man who came to Alexander the Great and who asked Alexander the Great to give him a huge sum of money in exchange for his daughter's hand in marriage, the dowry. Alexander agreed and told the man to request whatever he wanted from his treasurer. The man went to the treasurer and asked for this exorbitant sum. And the treasurer couldn't give that much away without going to talk to Alexander the Great. So the treasurer did that. And he argued that, that even a small fraction of what this guy is asking is more than enough for a dowry. But Alexander, replied, Alexander the Great replied, no, let him have it all. He does me honor. He treats me like a king and proves by his request that he believes that I am both rich and generous. Newton concludes, in the same way we should go to the throne of God's grace and present petitions that express honorable views of the love, riches, and bounty of our generous king. When we are large askers, brothers and sisters, when we take this text seriously, we're actually treating God as he deserves to be treated. And that's what Jesus is asking us to do here. Be large askers, large seekers, large pounders on the door of grace. Jesus is saying, turn to God and ask when you're at the end of your rope. He, in terms we can understand, he's actually giving us a blank check. Jesus is giving us a spiritual blank check here. Look again at verse 8 with me. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. To him who knocks, the door will be opened. Now, our hearts take this and kind of, because we're bent towards sin, we kind of take this and go, this blank check I can use for <clears throat> my comfort, my ease, what I want. We kind of get selfish with this blank check. We think of it as like a celestial slot machine. I pray, I pull, and here's my answer. Here's what I get. The prosperity teachers and the the peddlers of that health wealth gospel that are all over the radio and all over the TV, they just pick up and run with this, don't they? And when they do, our hearts kind of go with them. 
They use this as a proof text to, to ask God for new cars and, and new homes and, and the comforts of life, right? Just ask for it. They tell you what our sinful hearts want to, want to hear. We've got to be careful. We've got to be judicious. We've got to have filters up, brothers and sisters, when we listen. Because all that is saying is you can use this blank check for, for your sinful desires. And people like Oral Roberts and Creflo Dollar and Kenneth Copeland and Kenneth Hagen and Joyce Myers, yes, Joyce Myers, and Joel Osteen, they peddle this. They say, if you pray and believe, you will receive. You know, they, they love those kind of things. They twist this text into a pair of kind of golden handcuffs that they put on God. It's a wild misinterpretation, bad hermeneutics. This text is never intended to be used to ask for things that are superfluous and, and as God sees it, harm, harmful for us sometimes. He's a good God that gives good gifts, it says here. Not everything. I remember years ago when I first got here, I would go up to the food mart and I would get $25 and $50 gift certificates to give to people when, when they were in need to kind of help them as much as we could at that time. And I would write on those gift certificates not to be used for cigarettes or alcohol. You know, but I would give those out and they would go up and, and I gave those good gifts from the church to help people. But I put the, that, those parameters on it because I didn't want it to be used for harmful or superfluous things. I wanted them to buy, you know, food and formula and diapers and vegetables and, you know, to help them. These good things that will help them. That's a little bit of what is going on here. God absolutely is giving us a blank check here. There's no way around it. You can't, can't do theological gymnastics here. He's giving us a blank check. Ask, seek, and knock. But not for the comforts of this life, not for the selfish things that we oftentimes ask for, but for the good gifts, the good things that God can give. The parallel passage in, in Luke 11 maybe brings some clarity here. It says there, If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. That helps us. What are those good things? What are those good gifts? They're the things the Holy Spirit bears up in us. The things the Holy Spirit can give us. Jesus has in mind here the good gifts, the good things that the Spirit can give. That's the blank check, brothers and sisters. It's still a blank check. But it's for the things the Spirit can give us. Like, the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love. That's a good thing. Joy is a great thing. Peace. Patience. Wonderful. Kindness. Goodness. Faithfulness. What, what good things are these for us? Gentleness. Self-control. God is totally open-handed with prayers for spiritual growth, like the, like the, things that the, the gifts that the Spirit can give us. Those gifts that are found in 1 Corinthians 12 and in Romans 12 and Ephesians 4 
and 1 Peter 4, those gifts of the Holy Spirit like evangelism. That's a good gift. Leadership, discernment, serving. What a wonderful gift. Teaching. Mercy. We have blank checks for gifts like knowledge and exhortation and faith or administration and generosity and wisdom. As a matter of fact, James picks up on what Jesus is saying here and writes in his first chapter, verse 5, if anyone of you lacks wisdom, he should ask, ask God, right? Who gives generously to all without finding fault. And it will be given to him. Those are the words of God. Both James and Jesus say that God the Father is far more generous Father than even our earthly fathers. That's the point of him juxtaposing those in verses 9, 10, and 11. He's saying, you know, if you had a really generous father, well, praise God for that. God is infinitely more generous and more giving and more eager to give. The same John Newton that I mentioned earlier wrote a hymn that we're going to sing at the conclusion of our service today. As he was meditating on these verses, he actually wrote a hymn. And I want to read you the first stanza. He wrote, Come, my soul, thy suit prepare. Jesus loves to answer prayer. He himself has bid thee pray. Rise and ask without delay. Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. That's what God is saying here in his word. You can never out-ask God for the good things that he wants to give you. Do we believe that? Here's where the rubber meets the road for me. Studying this all week, this is where it comes to bear. Do I believe what Scripture is telling me here? That we have a blank check for the good gifts and good things and godly character and qualities. Do you believe that? Do you believe that asking for any good gift and you'll receive it? Seeking any good thing that God has in his word and he'll give it to you. That knocking for these things that the spirit has and he'll open that up and give it to you. Do we believe that? Do we trust God enough to believe what he says here? I remember that on Saturdays Mark comes in and I kind of reflect my sermon off him many times and, and I turned to him this Saturday and I said, I don't think I believe this. <laughs> I don't think I have enough faith to believe this. Because this is huge if this is true. I feel like that man in Mark who says, I believe, but help my unbelief, Lord. Over and over again, Jesus says in the Gospels, O ye of little faith, right? He says that all the time. He just said it in chapter 6, verse 30, right? In the context of anxiety. Do we really believe what Jesus says here? 
Do we really believe that God will 100% give us godly gifts and qualities if we ask? Do we believe that this is really a spiritual blank check? According to estimates reported by the Journal of State Taxation, the typical American home has an average of $300 in unused and unredeemed gift certificates. An average. These cards have often been misplaced, accidentally thrown out, forgotten about, things like that. So, an estimate between 2005 and 2011, it is estimated that more than $41 billion goes unredeemed. James chapter 4, verse 2, says, You do not have because you do not ask. Could it be possible that we simply don't ask? Could it be possible that we walk around with unredeemed spiritual blank checks? Unused, uncashed, unspent, good gifts, good things that God wants to give us, but that we just don't ask for it. Let me ask you a question to ask myself this week. When was the last time that you prayed for some of the godly character and qualities and gifts that I just listed off persistently, seriously, desperately like you pray for other things in your life? That was convicting for me. When is the last time I was desperate for the fruit of the Spirit or the gifts of the Spirit? When's the last time I read those and I just, it, I, I, you know, the Spirit's going to have to speak through me because I want that so desperately. For godly character and qualities. Now, I'm not talking about just praying once or twice. Or the kind of if-you-remember type prayers. Or when-you-need prayers. But the kind of things that, that focus your prayers. A loved one is dying of cancer. So you're going to pray all the time, continually focused, because you're desperate. If you're like me, not much. So Jesus tells us here, do that. Pray like that. Be persistent in your asking. Be persistent in your asking. In 2004, in the Olympics, something happened that never happened before. Sally Robbins, a member of Australia's rowing team, was competing in the women's eight, eight women rowing in the 1,500-meter competition. And with 400 meters left, Sally Robbins, you can see it on the video, slouches back into the woman in front of her and lets her oar go. And Australia went from third place very quickly to last place. Ten seconds off the pace, which is huge in rowing. Later, Robbins explained, I just rode my guts out for the first thousand and didn't have anything left. I was done for the day. 
So if you watch the video, you see that she just kind of gives up two-thirds through the race. I don't know about you, but I drop the oar all the time in my prayer life. You know, something is really important, and I start rowing really hard, and I drop the oar. I probably don't even get two-thirds of the way there. I start out praying like crazy, and over time, it just dips in the water. And the encouragement that I got from this text today, and that I want to pass on to you, and I think that Jesus wants us all to have, is that he wants us to keep rowing, keep persisting in those prayers, be methodical, be systematic, be persistent in praying for those good things that God wants to give you, the, the, the blank check that you have in your hand. That's what the Greek form of ask, seek, and knock actually shows us. It's in a, it's in a, a, a form called the, the present imperative. It's an imperative, it's a command. Ask, seek, knock, it's a, it's a command. But it's also in the present form, which means continuously ask, continuously seek, continuously knock. For those good things that God wants to give you. In other words, you know, Make a list and stick it somewhere where you see it every day, on your mirror or in your, in your car or on your refrigerator. Somewhere where you can say, I'm going to pray for these good things that God wants to give me persistently. That's why Jesus told the parable of the persistent widow in Luke 18. Tells there of a woman who keeps coming to the judge with the same exact request. And it's in quotes there. Grant me justice against my adversary. She, she just keeps coming and saying that to the judge. Grant me justice against my adversary. And the Bible says, for some time the judge refused. But finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. Now, some people read that and some people read here and and kind of use a kind of a beggar's logic. You know, if I ask enough, I'll wear God out and he'll give me what I'm asking. That's not what he's saying here. Or others see this, read this as, as a work. You know, if I do this enough, I, I'll earn that gift if I'm persistent enough. Scriptures tell us that's not what the parable is about at all. Verse 1 says, to show them that they should pray and not give up. That's what the parable is about. So why does God ask us to pray persistently? I mean, when I was in my office, I'm like, God, why don't you just give us these things? You know, let's, let's cut the middleman out here. Just give us these things. They're good, right? If they weren't good, you, you're eager to give it to us. Come on. Why does he ask us to pray? But isn't that what children do? I mean, Rain Hansen doesn't come up to me and give me his Christmas wish list, does he? Gives it to his parents. 
You know, Molly Updegraff does not come up and whisper what she wants for her birthday in my ear. She goes to her parents. Eliza Litchfield does not drag me over to the toy aisle and point out what she wants. She does that with her parents. Because that's what children do with their parents. Sinclair Ferguson wrote, We will really, we'll never really understand the wonder of his grace until, seeking mercy like a beggar before a judge, we discover that God wants us to be his sons and daughters. I think that's what's going on here. I think that's why he's asking us to pray. Come to me over and over. Drag me over to the spiritual toy aisle and point. Ask, seek, and not, and, and knock. Because it brings God joy. And we are actually acting like who we really are, which is his, his children. James Boyce wrote, God cares for us even if we do not ask, as an earthly father cares for an unresponsive child. But God wants us to have a personal relationship with him. And for that to happen, we must communicate to him in prayer. Asking, seeking, and knocking does not wear God down as it does us. It honors God. We are treating him like the wealthy king that he really is. Asking, seeking, and knocking does not annoy God as it does us. It warms his heart because we are treating him not as a distant God, but as an intimate heavenly Father. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. And Spirit, use this to change us, change our hearts so that our actions will be different. Help us to come to you all the time, consistently, asking for the good things that you want to give us. And give us faith, Lord God, to believe in this unbelievable blank check that you give us. Give us faith, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.